Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of BizBooks. My name is Gene March. This is my opportunity to talk to some super smart people that write really great business-related books. And today is certainly no exception. I am speaking with Andrew Friedman, who has written a really excellent book on, on management and leadership and success. It's called Thrive, The Leader's Guide to Building a High-Performance Culture. Uh, Andrew, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gene. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yep, so am I. Um, so before we even get started, um, your, the cover of your book says it, it's written by you with Paul Elliott. So let's give Paul a shout out. Tell us who Paul is. I, I love my man, Paul. Paul and I have known each other for, gosh, over tw over 20 years. He's been doing the work you know, that I also do in performance consulting and helping organizations build you know, a more robust way to help bring in and grow and develop talent probably over 60 years. I mean, he's he's been at this for, for a while. And, uh, and so he and I met each other 20 some odd years ago. We struck up a good kinship. We worked together for a while. We've worked in a lot of engagements together. And and we said, you know, we got to get this word out and we got to get it out in a bigger way. What do you, what do you think? Do you want to go at writing this book together? And so we decided to partner a lot of his contributions for folks that read the book. You know, we'll see some of the case examples, some of the models, um, those are a lot of Paul's contributions. He's an unbelievable human, super smart guy. All right. Well, that is great to know because this book really is chock full of models and and data and metrics as well. Andrew, tell us what you do for a living and why you wrote the book. Yeah, I, you know, I the way that I think about what I do is, you know, I aspire every day, Gene. When I wake up, I want to help people, teams, and organizations be more, do more, and give more. I want people going home at the end of the day feeling like their work mattered, their contributions mattered, they mattered, as opposed to what I see a lot in organizations, which is people are just, they're working really hard, they're trying really hard, but they go home at the end of the day, and not only is their to-do list longer, but they don't know if they won. They're not really feeling like they won. They feel a little deflated, a little, you know, deflated, a little less than, and that, to me, that's just, that's criminal. And so I am on a mission, and I have been for over 25 years, to help change the way that leaders think about building healthy and high-performing cultures. Like that's that's it, man. That's everything for me. What's your background? Well, I went to Tulane University, got a major in English. I really believed at the time that, you know, um, writing and speaking well was a lost art. I feel that way even more now, you know, 30 Great. some odd years later. And so I felt like whatever I did in life, I was going to really need those skills to influence, to communicate, to sell, to whatever, to relate to people. And so after I after I graduated, I of course, I took a job in health and fitness. Doesn't that make sense, right? English major, health and fitness. And I really fell in love with the, you know, I was doing personal training. I fell in love with the industry because of the impact I was able to have on people's lives. And looking back now, it all makes perfect sense because I was helping people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And, and then as I did that for a number of years, I said, ah, there's more, like, I'm, I'm not quite getting it. And my wife, uh, you know, at the time she was working in the pharmaceutical industry, she came home from a training and she said, the training was really good. The speaker though, the, the, the facilitator was like, ah, you could have done so much better because I was doing that in the industry that I was in. And so that was my transition. I actually cold called that company that put on the training. We had a conversation. They asked me to start a branch of their business, which was around influence and training and negotiation in Baltimore, where we live. I decided not to do that, but I did join another consulting firm, which is the firm that I'm with today as of this recording. And that was my foray and my entry into management consulting. 
and helping to build these healthy and high performing cultures. And I haven't looked back, man. It's it's my thing. I've like I've really found that zone. You are in a great space right now. I mean, you know, the economy can be up, it can be down. Uh, you know, you know, regardless of the year that we're in or the time that we're in, anybody running a business or managing at a higher level, uh, and any individual, you know, you know, everybody's looking to performing better, you know, and and they're looking to do some of the things that you guys have that that, that you've spread out in your book about you know, defining success and, um, you know, how to amplify your results and, and, you know, you being, you, you, you're going against resistance and, you know, and showing resilience, all this stuff, like everybody gets impacted by this. And it's just a great sort of specialty that you have. And I'm assuming not only do you write, but you're, you're speaking quite frequently on this topic as well. Right. This is this is true. I, I get asked a lot to lead off sites, run strategic planning sessions, do keynotes for large organizations, national sales meetings, leadership meetings, association meetings, because you're right. I mean, it's like you're, we're singing from the same same song sheet here. Yep. There is not a leader or an organization that doesn't need what it is that I'm an expert in. And I don't say that boastfully. I mean that for exactly all the reasons you said. There's not a business today or ever that isn't thinking about how to transform how to evolve, how to attract, how to grow, how to retain amazing people. Like the culture that we have and the, and retaining the great people that we, that, you know, that we bring into our organizations is like the only thing that is not copyable from organization to organization. And so building it, honing it, developing it, you know, nurturing it is absolutely essential today more than ever. Yep. You're absolutely right. Who is your target audience then for this book? You're calling this a leader's guide. Who are the leaders that you're thinking of? It's relevant for any leader at any level, but the people that I'm really speaking to in this book, they're CEOs, COOs, EVPs, SVPs. These are people who own a P&L. They're really like, you know, they own a sleeve of a business, a business unit. Like they are charged for operationalizing the strategy and really having the vision of where are we going and why does it matter? Those are the, those are the people that when we wrote this book, I said, these are the ones that are, are you know, like right in the bullseye of folks that should read this book. That's great. And for those of you guys that are watching this and you were uh, listening to this in our podcast, if you haven't um, read the book yet, I mean, it's it, it's it's a very succinct book. There's only seven you know main chapters. There's two sections to it. Um, you know what you know what Andrew does is he takes uh, you know the first section of it, basically saying you know where we are now and evaluating our performance today. But then the second part is looking towards the future. Um, and how to develop your strengths and skills to, you know, to grow and be a great leader. So, so let's get into it. Okay. Um, your first chapter of your book defines success, you know, um, there, there are metrics that define success. Um, there are risks for not achieving you know, certain outcomes. There are uh, certain roles that bring upon uh, you know, success to people. Tell us a little bit when you are, when, when not just as you're writing to this audience, but when you're working with clients, Andrew, um, you have to set a definition, a goal at the very beginning. So what advice do you give your clients when it comes to helping them define what they consider to be success? The, the first thing that I would say, Gene, it's important for every leader to get for their business. And, you know, and here's a plug again for the multidimensional applicability of the book. This applies to every aspect of a person's life. But in the business context, you know, I write a lot and talk a lot about this thinking right to left. That's the defining success piece, thinking right to left. So performance right. actually unfolds right to left, meaning you have to start with defining success. And it's not just like, I want to complete this task. We start, and I start with clients saying, 
you know, if you've called me in because you feel like your organization needs better training or you're having a hiring problem or you're attriting great people and, you know, that's having an impact on your, your customer relationships and your profitability, all those things, we got to first zoom out and say, okay, what does winning really look like? Because it's not just more trained people. It's what are the business outcomes that you're not getting that you need to see more of? So the first thing is that could be our organization's vision. Are we really clear on that? What's really the purpose of our organization? And today, as we're recording this conversation, there's a lot of instability. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of you know, non-linearness that's going on in the world right sure. now. Everybody's sure. trying to reinvent. So the first thing is we have to start by defining what are the outcomes that are most important to the business. Then and only then can we really talk about how do we move the needle closer to that? You know, when I look at my life, um, Andrew, like I, you know, a number of years ago, I kind of set up, I did exactly what you had just said. I mean, I, I said to myself, if I'm, if I'm, this is what I want to achieve to consider myself to be a success. Okay. So I'm 58 now, which is not unlike a lot of the leaders that you're working with. I feel like I have achieved those goals at the age of 58. Yeah. And sometimes it puts me into a funk because then I think to myself like, all right, well, I don't want to just sit on my ass for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And I don't want to be complacent, but sure. you know, what happens? I mean, you, you know, you set goals for people to hit. People will reach those goals. I'm assuming, you know, what happens after that? What do you tell your clients about, um, you know, continuing to strive forward or, or is it okay to just be complacent after you've reached the goals that you've considered to be success? Uh, I'll answer the second part first. I personally don't believe that it's, you know, it's in my DNA or the way that I teach people that it's that complacency is okay. That doesn't mean it's not okay to take your foot off the gas pedal from time to time. High performance doesn't mean pedal to the metal all the time. I use the phrase healthy and high performing. That combination is really, really important mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually healthy so that we can be our very best in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. But setting a goal is connected to, but distinct from a vision. So organizationally, or even individually, like, let me give you an example. When I think about my relationship with my wife, Joanne, we've been married this coming May, it will be 17 years. I'm very proud of that. And there's lots of people who've been married for much longer than that, much shorter, but 17 years to me, I feel really great about. And if I said to myself, have I achieved all of my relationship goals? Have we gotten to the place in our relationship that, you know, I think is the, like the, you know, the apex of where we could be. The answer is definitely no. Interesting. So, so am I married? Yes. Am I happy? Absolutely. Do I love Joanne with all of my heart? For sure. And I come into the year every year and I think right to left. I say, okay, on December 32nd, 2023, which yeah. right, we're recording this 2023, December 32nd, I'm looking back and I say, our relationship has hit the next level. What does that mean? Is it a different level of intimacy? Is it a different, a different level of connectedness? Is it a, another gear in honesty? Is it we're appreciating more random moments together? Is it we, you know, we have one or two new experiences that we want to have? I see. And so that way of thinking, you can port that into business and say, hey, look, you know, maybe we hit a sales goal and we achieved a new record. And sometimes it can be a little deflating when people feel like, oh my God, you're always moving the goalposts. Is, is it never enough? And the answer is, we should certainly relish the, our accomplishments and we should be proud of that. And our bold vision and ambition, that's aspirational. We will likely never achieve that vision. That's, mm. that's, like, that's the purpose of a vision, right? So think about Amazon. They've said for years, they wanna be the world's most customer-centric organization. 
Have they achieved that? I don't know. That's big, bold, and aspirational, but they always have new goals. They always have new strategies. They always have new products to be more like that. It's the same thing in any other business. You got to think vision and then make sure that we're setting strategies and goals and tactics that really connect us to or put us on that path towards that. I hope that helps. It's really good. It's it's really, really helpful. And the other thing that, uh, which which dovetails into, you know, the, the next part of your book, you write about creating environments and systems and resources for your team, for your people, you know, for your company. So I've got 10 employees in my company. And just to speak to what you just said, if if I stop, if I, you know, if I get complacent, if I'm not making new goals, if I'm not looking ahead and uh, creating a, you know, you know, new vision of where we want to be, um, I, I, you know, I believe that my organization then suffers, right? People lose interest and that's not yes. good for the long term. Do you have thoughts on that? Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, you, we definitely want to have an environment in the organization. You know, one of the descriptors is an adult to adult relationship, not a parent child relationship. So, you know, we don't want that. We want the adult to adult. That being said, our employees, like other humans, they, they watch what they, you know, what they see, they learn from what they see. So mm -hmm. I use a phrase often we do in my organization called model the way. So if you want your people to be goal driven, if you want them to be achievers, if you, and you want them to also have healthy balance, you've got to model that. Sure. So if they, if they watch you taking your foot off the gas pedal, if they observe you being distracted, if they see you saying work hard, and then you're not putting your all into helping your organization get where it needs to go. Those are conflicting messages. People get confused. They start to get a little detached, a little disengaged, a little distrustful. You see their discretionary efforts start to wane. Like that's where it all starts to break down. There's got to be alignment between what we say we want, where we say we're going, and then how we behave. All right. Let's talk about um, some of your advice that you give in the book about hiring and bringing on you know good people. Um, you write, and I'm, I'm reading from this now, that leaders cannot assume that candidates with strong resumes and 20-year track records as top producers in their field have exactly what it takes to succeed in a role within that leader's firm. Can you, can you explain more what you mean by that? Yes, 100% I can. I think everybody, I believe this, every single person that's listening to this podcast has had an experience either directly or they've seen it where somebody has a great resume, take sales. Sales is an easy one to, to, to look at, where you have somebody that on their resume, it says sold this much revenue, brought in this many new accounts, you know, these cool logos that they that they signed on. And it's like, wow, look at that person brought in millions of dollars of revenue. Like, okay, they have a pedigree. Look, look at all this track record. Of course, they're going to be able to sell because a salesperson is a salesperson is a salesperson. What might not be true about that is in your organization, you know, you talked to Gene about the environment systems and resources. There are six influences that are absolutely essential in building a healthy and high performing organization. Right. Environment systems and resources is one, but so is expectations and feedback. And so is rewards, recognition and consequences. You've also got, skill, you know, the, my motivations and preferences and my skills and my knowledge and my capacity and my job fit. So if I've sold in the past, and you bring me into your organization, but the expectations are unclear, like um, what kinds of accounts do you want me to sell to? How much should the average deal size be? Mm. What are the service promises that we're delivering to people when we sell them? Is it more important to bring in net new accounts or is it important to build customer relationships and farm? Like I, in the past, part of the way that I may have gotten to my $2 million in sales, just as an example annually, is maybe I farm existing relationships to grow them. 
but your expectation is you want me to go out and beat down doors and bring in brand new business. You actually don't value the maturation of existing relationships. We got a mismatch mm. in expectations and also my competencies and what motivates me. So yeah, my resume may say I can, I can sell, but what you need me to sell, how you need me to sell it and the environment in which I'm selling it could be vastly different. And there could be a big misalignment there. And that's a problem. You know, um, on that same topic. So I, I have a client, uh, Andrew, they're like based in, they're like in central Jersey. I'm in Philly, by the way. And um, they're having that exact same problem. Like they, they, they brought on about six months ago, um, a very, you know, highly compensated sales executive who uh, some of the owners of the company knew, you know, you know, just being in the industry and um, you know, with high expectations, he started, this was back in again, six months ago. And he, um, he's been kind of floundering around and they're a little frustrated by it, you know? Um, and it seems as if they, they were not, you know, just because somebody has been a producer in a prior life, you know, in a different organization doesn't necessarily mean it's going to match here. And this is the problem that they're having right now with this guy. And they know the guy's talented, but he is just not, does not seem like he is producing them, you know, the, the kind of sales that they were expecting. I'm kind of curious, based on what you just said, what kind of thoughts would you have for a client like that? Like, what do you do when you hire somebody that's got a good track record, but it's just they're not getting out of the batter's box within yeah. your own organization? Well, you got, you know, there's there's multiple variables here. So one is the influences we talked about, mm -hmm. the expectations and feedback, the environments, systems and resources, and the rewards, recognition and consequences. Those are owned at the organizational level. Right. So what I mean by that is if I've got somebody that I hire that I have high hopes for, high aspirations, they got the track record, the pedigree, all that stuff, and they're floundering, as you say, the first thing I do is I look at myself and I look at my organizational systems. Hmm. Are we setting this person up to win? Right. What are the barriers that are potentially getting in the way? Before I start looking at them and go, what's wrong with them? And you know, I should manage them tighter and I should make them turn in another report and I should yeah. like, well, hang on, maybe. First, let's, you know, leaders, look at thyself, heal thyself. Right. What are we doing? Have we been clear? Are we giving reinforcing feedback? Are we letting the person know what we value and what he or she is doing and what we need to see them do differently? Do they have the right resources? For example, you know, maybe we brought them in and it's a whole situation where they've got to develop a net new territory, but they've never needed to do that before. And we're just banking on the fact that they've got previous relationships, that they'll be able to tap those and sell to them for our business. That may or may not be true. So do they have the right resources? Right. Are our organizational systems set up to help them? Do they have access to information that they need? Do they have access to subject matter expertise? Do they have the right technology systems to help them accelerate sales? Like all of these things matter. So that's the first thing I would do, Gene. The second thing I would do then is really try to understand when I, when I look at, and I'm going to just assume this has happened, and it's sure. probably not a great assumption, that when we hire the person, there was some kind of diagnostic that we used to really understand the person's behaviors, their motivations, and their competencies. Because if if they're, if those things don't- I can assure you that did not happen, but keep going. <laughs> that's why I say most of the time it doesn't. Or, or we see leaders that use a diagnostic to hire and then they ignore the data because they're like, well, I knew this person or they've yeah. got a resume and it's like, oh my God, it's telling you that what you're going to deal with with this person. Why are you ignoring this data? So I would go back to- what data do we have about the person? And do we have alignment? Do they really have the requisite skills? And is there then some training that might be needed? Like, might we need to teach that person how to build a territory strategy or, you know, how to really think about marketing in a new territory if they've never done that before? You, you, you got to understand the 
it's both. It's the organizational right. responsibility, but then also the individual. It, it seems like, and you know, what I'm getting from you though is that if you're going to hire somebody, and this person, you know, clearly is a performer and a producer, and it's not happening right now. The, the, I don't want to use the word faults, uh, maybe responsibility really lies with you and your organization. Like, you know, what are, you know, we, we've, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, you, you bought like a Ferrari and, you know, you've got, you know, a, you know, a 10 year old behind the wheel, you know, so there is something that is not driving this vehicle. Right. And we've got to take a step up, look in the mirror and figure out what that is. Um, it's not his fault necessarily. It's our responsibility to give him the yeah. resources that he needs. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely shared responsibility, but I would put most of the onus at the organizational level. Like, yeah. here's what we, here's what, again, belief number two of Andrews is that people wake up every day and they want to do good work. They sure. want to achieve, they want to be proud, they want to grow, they don't want to come to work and fail. And if you've got a person, whether it's in sales, operations, customer service, leadership, manufacturing, plant floor, whatever, they're coming to work every day wanting to do a good job. And if they're not winning, here's the here's secret for all of your listeners. They know. They yeah. know they're not winning. They are toiling, oh, yeah. struggling, oh, yeah. stressed every day going, I'm not winning. I really need to win today. And then when they start losing again, it's just like, I mean, it eats them up from the inside out. So we've got to, as leaders, connect with empathy, compassion, understanding first, which is like, how are you? How is it going? Talk to me about the blockers. What's getting in your way? Right. Like really have open and honest conversations because there is shared responsibility. And it's, it's got to start with the leader, making sure that the individual knows that those conversations are okay. We'll move off the environment in just a minute, but there is one, one other, you know, interesting, you know, comment that you wrote about in the book that I, I wanted to ask for you to elaborate on. Um, you said that in our interactions with tens of thousands of employees, tens of thousands of employees, uh, the clear majority express a common feeling one-on-ones are not a productive use of their time. Some even perceive them to be obstacles to higher levels of engagement and performance. So, you know, by that, do you mean like what, like I, I take an employee aside, we use this guy's example in my client in central Jersey, you know, having an issue. So are you saying that for, for the owner of the company to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with that person is may not be the best approach to managing that person or creating the best environment for their growth? Um, no, let me give a little bit of distinction here. Please. One-on-ones can be one of the absolute best accelerators to engagement and performance. The issue is most organizations and most leaders do them terribly. Oh, okay. So for example, and it's, and it is true, tens of thousands, that is accurate. We have worked with so many, so many humans, um, over the course of the, the years that we've been around and that I've been doing what I'm doing. And, and the, the data comes back pretty consistent in organizations, which is somewhere between 50 to 60% of people say that they're not productive. And this right. is managers and individual contributors. Right. So managers are going into these meetings going, well, I, I mean, in, in some cases they're going, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to ask. So here's what winds up happening most of the time. Tell me if you've seen this movie. And to your <laughs> listeners, you can tell Gene if you've seen this movie too. <laughs> The manager shows up to the one-on-one -on -one and it becomes either a laundry list of things that the manager wants to talk at the employee about, <laughs> or the manager is just saying, you know, coming in sort of ad hoc, they have nothing really to talk about. And so they just wind up talking about all kinds of tactical stuff, nothing strategic, I, nothing. By the way, Andrew, not, not only have I seen that movie, but I am a, a star actor in that movie. Okay. So <laughs> I, that's, I that's see myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the problem. I mean, when it's, when it's done really well, 
Hmm. One-on-ones are a dedicated sacred space. We very rarely, if ever, move them. We're not late for them. Uh, They're on the calendar with regularity. Regularity could be, depending on the organization and the role, could be weekly, could be every other week, should not be less frequently than once a month. And and the agendas ideally are driven by the employee, not the manager, because this is time for the employee to get coached, to get developed, to talk about where his or her head is. Because, you know, let's let's face it in life. A lot of it is a mental game. So where's my head? Is my head in a good place? You know, do I have some head trash? Do I like do I have some negative self-talk going on? What are the barriers getting in my way? Like we got to talk about that stuff in one on ones. We got to talk about am I learning and am I progressing? against the goals that I've set. So it's a, it is a performance-based conversation. What's my, from a career trajectory standpoint, am I developing towards something? What is it I want to learn next, right? Who in the organization do I need to connect with? Where do I need help navigating or influencing or getting some subject matter expertise? These conversations should be very strategic. In a lot of cases, Gene, I hear managers say, oh yeah, I have one-on-ones all the time. My door is always open, right? People can come to me whenever they want. I'm like, that is not a one-on-one, right. not a one-on-one. Right. Great advice. It's great advice. Um, you write also, you talk about um, identifying individuals and whether or not, you know, they're, they're going to be performing in their jobs. Um, you say that, you know, even though somebody has, you know, a, a, you know, a good maybe job history, um, you write the candidates, you know, also need to show the demonstrated ability to learn, to adapt, to overcome obstacles, thing creatively. You know, I had a guy, I met a guy, this is like a couple of years ago. He's, it was like at a windows and doors conference and he, he runs like a, a windows and doors company somewhere. And, um, he said that he has little problem hiring people and finding the right people for his company because, um, he keeps his eyes open whenever he goes out to restaurants and retail stores. Like, you know, have you ever been like at a restaurant and like some server comes over to your table and like memorizes the whole order and has like a great attitude and shows a lot of energy and enthusiasm and all that. This guy said to me, and again, it was a couple of years ago, he's like, all right, that's the person I want to hire. Like I can teach that person how to sell windows and doors. I can't teach them how to, you know, have good enthusiasm and good energy and be able to like deal with the problems of serving in a restaurant. And I kind of feel like that's a similar you know, message that you're giving as well, right? It's not just how good a candidate looks on paper if they're going to be part of your team. It's how they adapt to your environment, right? Absolutely. And you know, the, it's interesting you mentioned that industry, you know, all hospitality industries, specifically in any kind of food service, restaurants, bars, things like that. I mean, those people have so much coming at them. Yeah. So many different priorities, yeah. stressed environment, time demands, irate customers, the amount that you need to store in your brain and get right. I mean, just, you know, the cognitive you know, expertise that people need to be able to have and bandwidth, it's pretty remarkable. And so yeah. if you think in your organization that those things are valued and valuable, then absolutely. There's a company that I did some work with, uh, you know, very large media company, over 10,000 employees. And uh, for some of their managers, like their station managers across the, across the country, you know, they didn't know this because they hadn't done the forensics on it. But as we started studying high performance in their organization, we found that one commonality in a lot of their highest performing general managers was that they actually worked in the restaurant industry and they had excelled in the restaurant industry. And that that really helped to prepare them for the multidimensional demands placed in their business. It was like, well, isn't that interesting? What do you think that did for their recruiters? They started fishing in additional ponds going, let's get intentional about looking for some of these really you know, high performing people in the restaurant industry. It, it, that could be transformational in terms of your ability to attract and retain. It, it helped to drive down recruiting costs by over $400,000 a year. I mean, that's material. 
Yeah, it's huge. And you know, sometimes I feel like there's like too big a weight given to somebody's technical skills or background. Um, it's, you know, for, when you have a really, really good performer, it's something that comes like from within, from the heart, you know, it's their attitude, it's their energy. And you can teach a lot of those technical skills, you know, and, and that was the point of the windows and doors guy. And, and he made me think the same thing. I, mean, I remember I was at a UPS store like a few months ago and it was like in the middle of rush hour and there was like a woman behind the counter and you have no, the stuff that was being thrown at her, like you can imagine, and she was like yeah. right on it, man. She was handling it really well. And this is like an hourly worker at the UPS, no, no offense to the UPS store, but I'm like, man, if I had a, you know, I mean, I should hire this woman. I mean, she could tackle any issue in my business, you know, the way she, and I can teach her whatever you know she needs to know, you know, um, yeah. it is, I don't know. It's, it's an, un, it's just an unwritten thing. Okay. I want to keep because I had so many questions for you about, um, you know, about what you wrote. So you, you have a whole section on motivation and preferences and motivating employees, and you accentuate the word why. Why? <laughs> well, I, you know, there's lots of people that can do lots of things. And when forced to, because it's in my job description, I could, like, for example, I probably have the aptitude and the capacity to be an actuary. However, <laughs> part of my why, I shared a little bit of this at the beginning of the call, like I wake up every day excited to collide with other humans, to engage with other people in ways that allow them to do all the things I said you know, at the beginning, learn, grow, develop, be more, give more, do more, feel more inspired. Are you about to say that being an actuary would not be an exciting way to do that? <laughs> I, I have a hypothesis that it might not be. Right? So, the, so, the, so the motive, so the mo like the the job situation and what is incented in that job mm. is not the same thing that motivates me. So we really got to understand what does drive somebody. So it's not about back to the technical competence thing. It's not do I have the aptitude to do the thing. It's am I going to do it with ease and energy? Because I could do it. But at the end of the day, and after two days, and after three days, and after five days, like my shelf life is going to be lower, right? And so the the discretionary effort effort that I'm going to put in is going to be lower. And so what we're looking for, ideally, is this match between what does the job incent, and what does what you know what 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 motivates the person. That's what we're looking for, and you know, and when we do it really right, the motivations of the person really align with the purpose and the path and the vision of the organization because they might not stay in that role forever. And so we do want to make sure that there's room for them to grow and evolve and develop and that they'll still be able to find inspiration and their inspiration might evolve, mm -hmm. uh, find inspiration in other places in the organization so that that job doesn't become self-limiting. You know, that's a great explanation. And you know, it's even further the point because, you know, you do write a lot about giving employees um, the why of why they're doing what they're doing. Cause we all want to have, when you look at studies of Gen X, you know, Gen Zers, they're coming into the, into the workplace. Many of them, people are asking what they want out of their job. And of course people want compensation and all that, but, um, a big, you know, factor of them is working for a place that's making a difference. You know what I mean? You know, right. And, and I get that, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the workplace is changing and, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that most businesses are, you know, painfully boring, uh, you know, what they, you know, what they do is not very sexy. Um, but in every part, in every business though, what they're doing is important. You know, they're making their little contribution to the world to keep the world going. And, um, I think it's very important to explain that why to your employees to make sure they're like, Hey, I know you're 
<clears throat> working for a company and we make carb, you know, corrugated containers, but there is a reason why you're doing this. There is a big why. Does that make sense? It does. I worked with a recruiting company a number of years ago. I've worked with a number of recruiting companies. This one in particular, um, they had a few specialties, one of which was like hospitalists and, you know, things of that sort. And when we were, we were recasting their vision, helping them, re, you know, redefine what their vision was. And we did this with a cross-functional interdisciplinary team, all levels of the organization. And as we were going through this and they were coming up with sample statements and things like that. And I was asking them about the global impact of their work. This company's based in you know, the Atlanta, Georgia area. Yep. And they said, well, we don't, we don't have a global, like we're here in the United States. We don't have a global impact. And I said, don't you? <laughs> right. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Let me just paint the hypothesis. You find an amazing hospitalist. You find you know, an unbelievably seasoned high level medical executive and you place them in a hospital, in a healthcare system. And somebody from somewhere in the world happens to be in their area and winds up with a major issue and needs to go in for service or a procedure that that hospitalist that you placed winds up caring for and changes the trajectory of their life. Yep. Are you telling me that that's not global yep. impact? And they were like, wow, we never, never thought of it that way. It's the old parable of, are you a bricklayer, bricklayer or a cathedral builder? Right. Right? It's the same kind of thing. What's your perspective? How are you thinking about your work? Meaning exists in every single job, everybody's work. You know, I, there was a there's a really cool video that I was watching just the other day, and it's a story of a gentleman who was in an airport and he was going through. It was around Christmas time. I'll give you the short version, and I'll send you the link. You can share it with your listeners. Sure. Quick version of the story goes. You know, I, I think it was a Starbucks, by the way, that he described it, and the woman was you know engaging with him, and he had an amazing experience, and he said. Why do you do what you do? Why do you work, you know, pouring coffee and whatever? And, and she said, I don't, I don't pour coffee. I'm making happiness. <laughs> and he was like, whoa, yeah. okay. Yeah. So this, it really is, it, that, that's, not, that's not cheeky. I, you know, I mean that, like there is meaning in everybody's work. The question is, can you find it? So some people go, well, Andrew, I don't have a purpose. And do I need to find my purpose before I can find my job? And it's like, no, you can find purpose in any work you do. If you really are introspective about what's important to you. And we're talking about building a high performance culture. And that is to me at the, at the core of, of what you do is making sure that your employees understand that what they're doing really does make a difference. And it doesn't have to be exciting or sexy because you know, we're all doing our little part in the world. And so are they, and that should be, you know, a big factor in, in increasing their performance at work because they know what they're doing is, is a really good thing. All right, Andrew, we only have a few minutes left. And I want to, um, I want to, I'm going to kind of run by a couple of final questions for you. Just want to get your thoughts. You write about something called case-based analysis. Yes. Can you explain to us, this is part of your analyzing your star employees, you know, area. What do you mean by case-based analysis? So if I wanted to really understand what excellence looks like in a specific role, there's lots of ways that I could do that. I could sit down with people. I could sit down with you and say, Gene, tell me why you're so awesome and tell me all the things that you do. Right. That's an approach. It's incomplete. It isn't effective. Case-based analysis is like this. I would, if you were one of the best people in the organization that performs a role based on qualitative and quantitative measures of success for that role, if you were one of those people, case-based analysis is I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to, I'm going to go with you as you're doing your job. Right. I'm going to shadow you. I call it like getting all National Geographic. I got to get in your 
natural habitat. I got to watch you. I got to study you. I got to understand your mental model because it's not just the practices that you do and the processes that you do. It's the rationale and the reasoning behind it. That's what's invisible to organizations and the leaders. They don't understand why people do things a certain way. And so that's one part of case-based analysis. The other is this. If it were a sales role, I'd say, Gene, tell me about uh, you know a large pursuit that you won recently. Walk me through from how you generated the lead to how you built value and got connection and got the appointment and how you uncovered the person's need and how you established more value and when you went to proposal and how you over, overcame yeah. stalling objections. Like, I, I want you to tell me the story because in that, there's all these little golden threads, yeah. the difference that makes a difference that is unseen and invisible to most people. I, I need to pull that out so that I can document it and make it visible and then we can hire to it, train to it, develop to it and hold accountable to it. Fascinating. That is a great, that, that is just a great approach. Um, okay. Um, you also write about something called role excellence profiles. You use yeah. a tool in your company called shift. Tell us about shift. Tell us about what role excellence profiles are. Well, shift, shift is that the actual company and, uh, and Sorry, so the, it's all yeah, at shift, right? Okay. Yeah. So role excellence profiles is, is codifying that process that I just talked about. Right. The profile becomes the document, which we call, it, it really becomes a blueprint, the design point. Once you've got this design point developed and it captures the outcomes that people produce, the indicators or measures of success, the specific things that people do, and then things like tools that they should use, uh, like humans, other people they should engage with accelerators and barriers. Once that's all documented, Gene, that becomes the design point that allows us to do more precise hiring, better interviewing, more objective decisions, better onboarding, better development, better one-on-ones, better coaching, better mentoring. That's the play. So do you do this on a on an employee by employee basis or on a job by job basis? Role basis. Role. role basis. Yeah. Okay. The two most common things are a specific role that is absolutely essential to the success of the company. Right. And that's one. And then the two second most most common is, is that it's an actual band. Like I do a lot of work with organizations who say at the leadership level of executive or senior vice president or director or frontline manager. So it's not functionally based. It's actually role band based. Got it. Okay. When you're evaluating employees, you also, um, uh, you're big on metrics and analytics and you talk about, you know, keeping a, a balanced scorecard. Uh, balanced scorecards have been in organizations for decades and a lot of people use that approach to uh, measure lots of different things in a business. Tell us, first of all, just uh, let, let's, let's insult the intelligence of our, of our listeners and watchers and explain just basically what a balanced scorecard is. And I'd like to know what you mean by using it. Uh, to sort of amplify people's results at the macro at the macro level organizationally it's really making sure that there's not one or two parts of the business that just dom that dominate it's like we're only going to look at in many organizations we're, you know revenue is most important yeah. or profit's most important or EBITDA is most important true 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 and true but that's not it there's lots of things that are interconnected in our ability to be able to produce that so balanced scorecard usually has dimensions like there's a customer metric area there is a finance metric area. There's an operation metric area. There's a technology metric area. So you're looking at the interplay of these things and it's connected to the value chain of the organization, how right. we make money, what our differentiator is in the marketplace. And we've got to make sure that we have clear and transparent metrics in those areas that I just mentioned so that everybody then in the organization goes, okay, in my department 
and in my role, how does what I do influence or drive those customer metrics that we said were most important or those operational metrics? I was speaking to a customer, you know, one of our clients the other day, and uh, you know, the president and the CEO were talking about like everybody right now in our organization needs to be thinking about how we can drive down our cost per participant. Mm. There's many people who do not touch the customer. So it's like, well, how do I do that? That's part of the conversation is everything that everybody does can be connected to drop, driving down cost per participant. Are we being effective? Are we being efficient? Are we reducing errors? Is our quality higher? Are we making sure that we're hearing the voice of our customer? All those things do play in and the customer could be employee or external customer. They play into that balanced scorecard. Are you, an, are you an advocate of tying people's performance reviews to that balanced scorecard and therefore tying their compensation to those performance reviews? Well, those are two different things. I definitely think that you know performance reviews should all be connected to my, my role. So am I excelling in my role? And also, am I adding value in the, you know, in the broader picture from a company standpoint? There should definitely be linkage and alignment there. Okay. The money piece is, is interesting. I'm a, I'm a big fan personally of decoupling performance reviews from, you know, do I get a raise? Do I get a bonus? Do I like, you know, my performance review is, am I performing against the standards of excellence? Okay. Yes. Now, if they're with consistency, there is a way to loosely connect those things, but but when you when they're tied too tightly, Gene, what I see oftentimes is people only look at their performance review as a, am I getting more money or not? Mm. And they what they lose is, am I growing? Mm. Am I evolving? Am I setting stretch goals for myself? Am I developing new skills? Like they're they're missing the learning and performance orientation, and it just becomes a gateway to making more money. And I I what I have found is that's a that's that's a losing proposition because then the conversation always revolves around money. Not, not me growing. All right, fair enough. Um, in the last minute or so that we have, um, near the end of your book, you talk about resistance and resilience, and um, you talk about mindset, okay? And, and you write specifically, uh, the difficulty sustaining change has been proven time and again, whether the goal is weight loss or quitting smoking or implementing new ways of driving sales and operational processes. Obviously, we make these decisions, we make our New Year's resolutions, uh, we're going to you know, stop smoking or stop drinking in January. And three weeks later, we're out there, you know, you know, right. We've broken that New Year's resolution. It's just sustaining that is, is hard. And you say it, it comes down to mindset. So give us some final thoughts on, on what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot, most people live at the process level. So mm -hmm. just using some of those examples, like if I wanted to lose weight, there's so many processes. I could join a gym. I could go on a diet. I could do cleanses. I could do mm -hmm. fasting. I could work out at home. I could, you know, I could hypnotize myself. Like there's all kinds of things I could, I could get an Apple watch to track my steps. Right. Fabulous. But when the stuff hits the fan, right? And the stuff is everyday things that show up as resistance. Resistance is like the dark side of us. It's the things we're fearful about. It's the struggle bus that we're on. It's the anxiety. It's the feel of loss of lacking, right? When those things hit me, the question is, am I robust and resilient enough to fight through them? And where that comes from is actually our why, our mindset. Why is this thing important? Why did I set this goal of losing the weight? You know, if it's just I want to lose weight and it's not tied to something that inspires me, for example, for some people, you know, they say they say things as, as you know, straightforward as my daughter's getting married in six months and I want to make sure that on her wedding day, one, I'm alive, uh, two, I'm healthy and I look good in pictures and I'm there for her and I can really enjoy the moment. I want to be around 
so that when my grandkids are here, I can bounce them on my, you know, on my knee. Like those are those that from a mindset standpoint, that's what gives people the resilience when they go, I think I'm going to eat that piece of cheesecake, or I think I'm not going to go to the gym today. They go, well, hang on a second. Why did I say it was important to achieve that goal? Because if it's just lose weight, just go to the gym, just quit sure. smoking. When the stuff hits the fan, we are not our most resilient selves. We've got to give ourselves a little bit of help by first checking what's going on up top. Can you, and I only know we only have a minute or so less, but can you tie that to a business example? Like, what do you mean by say, you know, if you can give me an example of a yeah. setting that mindset in a business environment? 100%, 100%. So I, uh, here's an example of, I'm a, somebody that's in operations yep. and I deal with, and I deal with customer um, facing roles inside my organization. Okay. And I know that when I'm dealing with my customer facing internal counterparts, sometimes they're going to push me to move faster and to develop solutions that are not scalable, but it's just because that one customer needs something and everything seems like it's an emergency and we really don't seem to be on the same page. So I feel like even though I've got operational goals that I'm managed to every day, I'm in an unwinnable situation. Right. I know that when my counterparts come to me, in my mind, I go, here we go again. Like, I know I need to hit these scalable goals, but there's no way that I can win because these other people are going to be coming to me and they're going to be unhappy with me, making unreasonable de demands. And so my head, I go into that dark place. I'm not really resilient. I just start checking the box. I sometimes become a little short. I become a little impatient. And it's all because... My head's not in a good place to be able to engage those folks to say something like this. Can we find the common goal here that we're both after back to the organization's vision and our balanced scorecard instead right. of becoming adversarial and confrontational? Makes sense. The book is called Thrive, The Leader's Guide to Building a High-Performance Culture. Great read. I've been speaking with Andrew Friedman. He wrote this book in uh, partnership with Paul Elliott. Andrew, that was a great conversation. The book is excellent. I highly recommend anybody running a company, big or small, should be reading this book. It gives us a just a you know a real great view on being a leader and and building an organization that uh, can be productive and grow and profitable. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. Thanks, Gene. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, you've been watching and listening to BizBooks. My name is Gene Marks. Thank you so much for paying attention. Uh, we'll be back in just two weeks with another great interview with another smart and successful business writer like Andrew uh, to hopefully help you in your business and your personal life as well. Thanks again for watching and listening. We will see you again soon. Take care.